Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to One Billion Raving Fans, a podcast from the people at Waitwell. I'm your host, Shannon Bannermulen. I'm fascinated by the art and science of service excellence. Why do some brands have customers who are so loyal that they act like raving fans? Our guests share their perspectives on customer experience and offer tips you can use to create a culture of fandom around your business. I'm here today with Donovan Simon. Donovan is Director for Client Success at Blackline Safety and has literally written the book on customer service called The Way You Make Me Feel. Welcome, Donovan. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's a pleasure, Shannon. So... First of all, back to basics. How do you define customer success? What is it all about? That's a good way to start. I think it needs to come, first of all, from the perspective of the customer. So I think the definition may vary. No different than if I say to you, what does success mean to you? It's likely that each person will have their own sense of what that is. For the customer, though, I think it's extracting value from what they're investing in your products and services. You've been interested in this topic for a long time. Give us sort of an overview of your involvement in the topic. How did you get interested in customer success and how did you determine that that's sort of where you wanted to place your interest? You know, for for many years, I've been involved in customer-facing roles. So managing customer support, technical support, you know, you, you name the way we have called these teams. And, and then I got to a conference a while back where somebody from Forrester was presenting and they were talking about customer experience and the fact that it is a deliberate process. We got into looking at several use cases, if we could use that term on how different companies approached designing and executing processes to deliver a certain experience for their customers and how different brands invested in using that to leverage their brand. And I just found that very fascinating. So I got behind the scenes of it to look at the mechanics and the tools and some of the thinking and Hence, you know, having seen that, I started putting a different set of lens on my role in the companies that I have been involved in and trying to help them understand that there's a different and a better way to look at this whole concept of customers and delivering a specific experience for them. So you've been involved in this topic for quite a long time. Obviously, we're living in kind of a new age and, you know, people like to say that COVID has really changed our perspective on everything. And obviously, even before COVID, we have, you know, digital transformation happening, a lot of automation that's happening. So would you say that customer success and the thinking around it has been transformed significantly in the last sort of 20 years or so? 
Yes and no. So, so let me walk through that. In fact, I did write a book called Social Media Equals Social Customer to respond to some of that. The fact of the matter is that I think the fundamentals of what customers are looking for remain the same. They're looking for value. They're looking for speed. They're looking for delight. And to that extent, what we deliver to them doesn't really change. How we deliver it is what I think has been transformed over the last little bit with the influx of different technologies, which allow companies to respond faster, respond digitally, respond personally to the different needs of customers. We've got more data and more analytics that we can use to structure our responses. But the basic needs of the customers really haven't changed much. So what customers are looking for isn't different and what companies need to deliver isn't different, but the tools that they use are different. Do you think that some companies are kind of failing at it? Are they using the tools wrong? What are the pitfalls in relying on digital tools to deliver customer service? Yeah, companies are getting it wrong, not not so much because of the tools, because in many cases, they're spending a lot of money on these tools. I think it's because of the strategy and the focus, the structure isn't right. I use a, a term that I, you know, I share when I, I do workshops or other things that companies that don't focus and structure customer experience spend a lot of time and money on customer service. So I'll say that again. Customers are companies that don't focus on and build out a customer experience strategy, spend a lot of time on customer service. Right. Okay. That makes sense. What's the first thing an organization needs to do when they commit themselves to developing a better customer-focused strategy? Well, there you go. They've done it. The first thing they've done is accept that we need to build a deliberate strategy and be focused in this area. Then I think it's important to understand the customer's journey. What do they go through? What are those touch points? What are the pain points? And what type of experience do you want to deliver at each interaction. You know, companies need to look at the variations of interactions that they have with their customers. Some of them are digital, some of them are in person, some of them are a combination. So if you think of what's happening today with COVID, lots of interactions are occurring virtually. People are on Zoom and other tools interfacing with customers. So there's this interface that is happening between technology and individuals and these customers. So these are things that companies need to design and put a framework around to say, well, what do we want that to look like? What is the desired outcome from each of these interactions? And can we design it to get there? Do most organizations have the resources that they need internally in order to address this problem and develop these strategies? Or is this something that they really need to have somebody from the outside come in to help them with? I'm going to say in most cases, they don't have it. And some help would definitely be useful. It comes back to, are you aware of what you're trying to achieve? You know, you look at what your company does, for example, and here's a tool But the first thing that needs to to happen is for the company to say, I have a problem, I have a need, in order to then see that as a potential solution. And it does start, like I said, with understanding the trade-offs of investing in customer experience in order to deliver certain outcomes for the company, because I think there are major benefits to investing in customer experience. And also, of course, the customer gets the benefits from having that experience. Let's get back to basics, talking about sort of frontline service 
delivery. Obviously, COVID has taken a toll on workers, and we're hearing a lot about, you know, the great resignation. We're hearing a lot about how organizations need to change in order to, you know, adapt to this new reality. There's a workforce shortage in, I would say, a lot of North America, at least, that we keep hearing about. Obviously, delivering service, whether it's face-to-face or over the phone, it can be really draining. It can be a challenging job. So what can organizations do to really support the people who are sort of acting as the face of the company? Oh, that's that's a loaded one. (laughs) I, I mean, we could go from a number of different angles. One is, I think, compensate properly. I think too often the face of the organization is not properly compensated and you get what you pay for in some cases. I think there needs to be greater investment in people and culture. Even with a virtual workforce, there is the need to ensure that employees are engaged and employees are bought in to what the, the company is about. And that comes with how the teams are led, how the teams are managed. And I think the third piece is providing appropriate tools. Many of the frontline staff suffer from deficiency in tools and throughput and data, etc. So they feel left on an island trying to do their jobs. So those are a number of things that I think companies can invest in in order to make those roles more fulfilling. Training is really important. I I read somewhere on, I think I saw an article on LinkedIn, and I thought it was interesting that it referenced improper training as being a leading cause that people leave their professions. And I thought that was really interesting because we often, you know, we talk about culture a lot. We talk about compensation. But one of the reasons that a lot of people leave their job is that they don't feel properly equipped to do the job. And therefore, that really contributes to their stress levels. If you feel inadequate in each circumstance that comes up, and I remember these, these roles are repetitive. When you hang up from one call, there's going to be another one. Or if it's an email or whatever the process is or method is for interaction. So there's a certain amount of monotony and repetitiveness that comes in. And you want to feel that you are adequately able to respond to the requests, the requirements of the customer at the end of the day. Because nobody walks in, I think, wanting to do a horrible job. No. Right? And therefore, if you feel that you are not being supported, whether through tools, whether through training, whether through leadership, to get your job done, of course, after a while, it, it's, it's hard enough to do what you do. Even worse, if you're not properly supported. So what are the hallmarks of a really great onboarding process and training process for customer support? What does that look like? Obviously, it's going to differ a little bit depending on what the company does, but what are some things that companies should be thinking about when they're designing their onboarding processes? I'm going to start a little bit before onboarding. I think it starts with recruiting. Get the right people in the roles, people who are empathetic, people who are understanding, people who communicate well people who understand the nature of human interaction. Then I think as you get into onboarding, it's, you know, teaching culture, teaching the outcomes that you're looking for, ensuring that the staff understand how it reflects on the brand, what customer centricity means, what the value of a customer is to the business and how you negotiate and and go through whatever these issues are in order to get to resolution. And then I think the other big piece is reinforcement. 
I think, you know, too often we go through kind of a learning process with onboarding, but there's no reinforcement mechanism. How often do you follow up and ensure that the persons who are dealing with the customers at the front end are refreshing and sharing those learnings in order to help everyone around them be just as good and also to ensure that there's consistency in how that brand is represented. So when somebody calls or when somebody writes, there's a certain feel each time you interact with the customer. And that's what I talk about, building out what your customer experience looks like, because you can achieve that through those different methods. Right. That goes back to the title of your book, The Way You Make Me Feel. Just to back up, though, what you talked about hiring. So you're looking for certain characteristics and you mentioned empathy, you mentioned communication skills and, you know, a deep understanding of of human nature. But how can a recruiter identify those attributes or those skills during the recruitment process? I think there are a number of ways you do that. You know, the questions you ask, the responses you get, body language, the way the candidate will respond to, I'm going to say, a pressure situation, the way they negotiate a difficult scenario. So I think there are a number of ways that you can test somebody's skills, somebody's aptitude, and somebody's inclination as part of the recruiting process. Let's talk about feedback. I'm a huge fan of feedback. I think it's so important in many different levels of the organization. You know, at the basic level, it's customers giving us feedback about how they feel about the experience and how likely they are to return. And yet a lot of organizations are kind of afraid to ask for feedback or they do it in a way that's very like too little, too late. They've, you know, they do it after the service is complete and, you know, it's probably not going to change the outcome about whether the customer returns for another visit or not. What do you think are some best practices that organizations should engage when it comes to collecting customer feedback? We're going to go back to basics on this. Like I said, design the customer experience strategy. So therefore, you know where your feedback interactions are going to occur long before they occur, and you have designed what that is going to look like. The other piece is Feedback comes in a number of different ways. Feedback doesn't have to be just a straight survey. You know, just this week I was saying to somebody, customers provide us with feedback organically if we're listening, right? So again, in designing, how am I going to get feedback? There are different ways that you can approach it. And then the reactive feedback is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's a part of the whole framework of what feedback should look for. So yes, there are some cases that you might do a survey there are some cases that you might not, but let's accept customers who have, let's say, a bad experience who provide you with feedback is actually a good thing. It suggests that they are still engaged, that they still care, and that they're still open to resolution and continuing with your product or service. So there, there are a number of things that can be gained at the different interaction points if structured properly. Right. But feedback has to be something that is designed from the outset. You know, my experience as the owner of a business that gets a lot of customer feedback is that we have sort of what I I think of it in terms of sort of formal ways of collecting customer feedback. So for the typical is, you know, send a survey after completion, you know, how likely would you be to use our services again? But there are obviously a lot of opportunities very early on and throughout the customer journey to collect that feedback. For me, one of the challenges is how do you let your team know that feedback is welcome? 
and to give them a process for sort of putting that feedback back into the organization in a way that it can inform the decisions the organization makes about how they structure the customer journey. How do you create that sort of safe environment where you know, staff feel comfortable to bring forward customer concerns and really act as sort of an advocate for the customer? Well, we, we mentioned that earlier. It depends on the culture that is established. It depends on the very clear directives and framework that's built out around customer centricity. You know, I'll give you an example. Within, within one of the teams I manage, one of the goals is around customer engagement and getting customer feedback. So a part of your role and how you're assessed in your role includes the degree to which you're, you're engaging your customers or your accounts regularly and getting feedback in a number of specific ways. That's just one example. But that comes from a higher level of saying customers are really key to our business. Everybody knows that. But here's how we're going to engage them. Here's how our company is going to thrive. And here's a culture of safety. Here's a culture of trust. Here's a culture of respect that we're going to build around the way we relate as team members and also the way we relate to our customers. I really love that. With my registry business, when I first started really getting serious about customer feedback, and I started paying a lot more attention to sort of our online reputation and what people were saying about us on Google and what people were saying about us on Yelp. And one of the things that I ran into really early on is that it kind of scared some of my team. They started to feel like, well, you know, it's because the management is really looking at this a lot. If somebody says something bad about my service on Google, I'm going to be in trouble. My job's going to be in jeopardy. You know, so I had to work really hard on sort of creating that safety and and helping them to understand that it was really about sort of growth mindset and about improving our, our service delivery. But social media can really be sort of a minefield, or at least a lot of organizations see it as sort of a dangerous place. And yet it's really becoming increasingly important to maintain that reputation online. So what advice would you give to organizations that are just sort of at the beginning point of starting to really pay attention to what people are saying about them on social media? That's a really good, good one. Like I said, you know, social media equals social customers. That's the first thing. Acknowledging that we've got to meet customers where they are. So if they're in a social space, uh, we're going to have to go there and therefore we're going to have to navigate that. Even if they're on TikTok? (laughs) Even if they're on TikTok, right? If you look at social media and who knows what the next big thing is going to be on social media. So that's something I've always said, like, who knew that social media would have become what it is? And, you know, look at the market cap of some of these companies. Look at the customer base of some of these companies. What I'll say, though, is, A, you've got to meet customers where they are. So I think every company needs to embrace that. So if that's the space that they're in, we're going to go there. We also want to go there and in the process, understand how we're going to build our brand there. Because at the end of the day, in the same way that you don't know who they are and you know they don't know who you are personally, what they're responding to is the experience they've had and the brand. So a big part of that process is what are you doing to build and promote your brand? And the third piece to it is to understand that it's going to be a plus and minus circumstance. What you're trying to get to is a net positive perception in that space. 
And if the team understands that, if the people who are designing and executing the different elements of, you know, whether it's a survey or feedback, whatever that structure is, understands that, then I think they'll be fine. Even the best brands in the world have detractors. Even when they've got an outstanding net promoter score or whatever measure they use. So therefore, that fundamental should be understood. And therefore, whoever is doing it, whoever is seeing it, you know, shouldn't lose their mind because one person says, you know what, your service sucks. Yeah, for sure. There's always going to be a detractor. So that's a great segue into my next question, which is just about, you know, exceptional brands. So obviously you've been studying, you've been following along on the topic of customer service excellence for a long time now. So what are some brands that really inspire you and what can you share about what they've done that maybe some of us, you know, smaller organizations could emulate? That's, that's interesting. Let me start with a little bit of a disclaimer to say brands and the, the perception that customers have of brands is an evolution. So, you know, what might be a great brand today in five years, in 10 years may not necessarily be seen that way. That said, some of the brands that I, you know, I look at and will highlight is let's look at Disney. Disney has been able for decades to inspire a certain feeling, a certain experience in customers and people still keep going. And they've been able to expand their brands in new parks, in cruises, in a new channel for streaming and all the rest of it. Into consulting for customer service. There you go. Because of the very thing that they have done, which is build a certain experience for their customers. So Disney is one brand that jumps out. Zappos, you know, for the shoe connoisseurs, has also built a certain brand, a certain reputation around how they relate to customers, how they treat the, the customer expectation. And, you know, people, for those who are, are into shoes, spend a lot of money with Zappos. Zappos is an online store, quite frankly, and there, there are millions of online stores. So, you know, what, what have these guys done that has, you know, made them stand out so much? Again, build a deliberate strategy around the experience they want to deliver, what they want their brand to stand for, how they, you know, operate internally. And, you know, again, Zappos is one that people can look at. Sephora in the beauty space, again, an online space because everybody's online. So let's acknowledge that. You know, we can go down the list. Starbucks, I think, has built a great brand, our own experience and selling a premium product. And I, and I say to somebody, you know, look at Starbucks selling a cup of coffee twice as much as, you know, the guy next door, Tim Hortons. What is it that attracts people? What is it that make them go back? What is it that make them buy a scone for twice the price? It's the experience that they've built out in the layout of their store and the training of their staff in the way they manage the overall experience of customers. So those are a few brands that I, I'd call out that have worked hard over time as they've built their company around how they want customers to feel. Those are all excellent examples. Just thinking about, you know, the small business owner that, you know, doesn't have sort of the resources to necessarily bring in a, you know, third-party consultant to map their customer journey. Let's imagine, for example, uh, you know, a registry office with 18 staff high volume business. So we're not talking about having the sort of leeway to sort of go above and beyond and really delight particular customer with a free cruise or, you know, 50% off their next service or whatever. You know, a lot of what I read around customer service excellence talks about these sort of like exceptional 
situations, you know, going above and beyond for a customer. But for a lot of organizations, they're really dealing with hundreds and thousands of customers, a lot of traffic, a lot of interactions. The way that I look at it, at least, the sort of balance between delivering a really exceptional above and beyond customer experience and just being consistent with the service that you do deliver. So do you see it the same way? Do you see it as sort of a, a balance or a continuum between those two things? It is a balance. And let's, let's kind of go back one. The delivering of an experience in all the circumstances that I mentioned before are quite repetitive. When you go on an airline, it's the same, you know, it's pilot taking you off, the flight attendants addressing you in a particular way. You know, if you go into a coffee shop, it's kind of the same thing. If you're going on an online store, kind of the same thing. So when I look at a small business, for example, I say, let's, let's pull back. What type of experience do you want 80% of the people who come into your store to have? And what does that look like? And there are some simple elements that can go into it. It could be the greeting, the body language that you give off. I don't know if you've ever been in a business and you get the sense that you disturbed them, right? So is that something that you would build into the experience that your company, your staff, your coffee shop, your registry delivers? Speed of the interaction. How do you set the expectation? Because some of it is simple communication. Hey, this is going to take me a few minutes versus silence. You know, how do you manage the end of the interaction? What should the end of the interaction look like? I talk a lot about this with my team, so I'm interested to see what you have to say about that. Well, uh, it could be a question. Did we resolve what you were, were looking for? Is there anything else that you possibly didn't think of? But since you're here, I might be able to assist you with. Depending on what the interaction may have been, it could be just a smile and have a good day or enjoy the rest of your day. I went into a, a business once and the person said, like, how are you? And I said, I'm, I'm amazing. And it was almost like it shocked her that I would use the word amazing. And I'm like, is it OK to be amazing in your store? So, you know, I, I think there are different ways that we can delight customers within our brand. And I can tell you, even within your business, there are people who would come in there and will have a preference of the agent that they want to talk to based on a previous experience. Yeah, I certainly have that experience in my registry quite a lot. There you go. And the question is, why? It's because of the energy that one person gives off. It's because of the consistency. It could be just body language, eye contact. It could be just being open to assisting and delivering a certain type of experience. One of the questions that I always ask when I'm interviewing new staff is about customer service and what great customer service looks like for them. And the reason I brought up that previous question was that the reply that I almost always get is an exceptional experience. And so they'll talk about a time where, you know, for example, they went to a store and an item was on sale, but they didn't have it. And, you know, they got a rain check and they ended up getting the item almost for free. Or they went to a restaurant and, you know, the chicken was cold and therefore they got their whole meal for free. And so I, I hear that a lot. Like, you know, that seems to be a lot of people's definition of a great experience is that they got a great deal or they got something for free. As a business owner, I don't really think that's a great experience because both sides didn't win there. And it's not repeatable in a lot of different business contexts. Like in my registry, for example, I can't give someone a free car registration because the government expects to get paid for that. And yet that seems to be a lot of what people's perception of what a great experience is, is these sort of exceptional where the manager went out of his or her way to do something that is not repeatable. Right. 
You remember where I started this conversation earlier? When you don't design customer experience, you spend a lot of time and money on customer service. What you're talking about is spending time and money on customer service because somebody pays for that one way or the other. If somebody doesn't do your chicken properly or your meal properly and they have to replace it, something gets thrown out. If we go on the other side of that, where we've got a process that's working really well to delight, you don't do that a lot. The customer is also paying premium prices for those experiences. Now, not every product, not every service comes with a premium price. You know, for example, your registry business is regulated and there are certain ranges of service costs that are applied. What I'll say is the deliberate design of how the experience should go allows for a certain consistency in the quality of the interactions. And people will make the preference, the choice to use your registry over another. They'll drive the extra five minutes, the extra 10 kilometers, because they can expect a certain type of service, a certain quality of service in that particular business. And people do that. Yeah, I love it. Consistency is a a really ongoing theme in our podcast. I I don't know if you've listened to the episode with Ildir Lat, but that's a lot of what she talks about as well. It comes up time and time again. It's not about going above and beyond for one customer. It's about making sure that, you know, as you said, that the 80% of your customers are having the experience that you've designed and thought out. We're all customers. So whether we're on the side of doing our jobs or running our businesses, we are also all customers. So we should, and I think sometimes that's missed, we should understand what customers feel, what average service feels like, what poor service feels like, what a bad experience feels like. And therefore, we should be able to contribute to the design of what an outstanding or a consistent quality experience would feel like for the customers that are using our products and services. That was a key takeaway that I got from your book, The Way You Make Me Feel as well. Thanks for joining me today, Donovan. It's been great chatting with you. Check out www.waitwell.ca for the show notes and links to Donovan's profile and books so you can learn more. Pleasure being on, Shannon. And keep going with Waitwell. I think you guys are doing a great job. Thanks for listening to One Billion Raving Fans. If you enjoyed listening, please follow or subscribe and tell a friend. Visit www.waitwell.ca to download a tip sheet you can use to create 1 billion raving fans for your business. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.